Welcome to the College Scoops Podcast. I'm your host, Moira McCullough, and today we are talking with Mike Bergen on what students should consider when taking the ACT or SAT test. But very often, looking at it as something different, say, this is not an obstacle. This is an opportunity. This is a chance. And just changing the paradigm turns a big test. And I don't just mean the SAT or ACT. I mean a final or an audition or tryouts or a championship, like whatever it is, like this is a chance. This is the College Scoops Podcast, and I'm your host, Moira McCullough. We focus on everything college-related, from the admissions process to where to eat, stay, and explore on and around campuses. Our guests include founders, educators, authors, and experts in the college space. Join us as these experts share their knowledge, experiences, and lessons learned to help you have stress-free, informative, and tasty college journeys. Whether it's your first or last child going to college, or you're just interested in going to a college town for a game or meal, we've got you covered. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the College Scoops podcast to get the inside scoops on everything college-related, and leave us a review. Thanks to all of our sponsors, partners, and the entire College Scoops Ambassador team for helping us bring valuable content to our community. If you would like to support College Scoops as a sponsor, please head over to Patreon at patreon.com slash college scoops and sign up as a sustaining listener, insider, or deluxe sponsor. We have exclusive benefits for our members and even a College Scoops care package. After over 25 years of intensive experience in every aspect of standardized test preparation, Mike Bergen knows what works in test prep and what doesn't. A nationally recognized leader in test prep, Mike founded Chariot Learning in 2009 to deliver on the promise of what truly transformative, individualized education can and should be. Besides overseeing Chariot Learning's national programs, Mike is an ACT certified educator who trains high school teachers and private tutors across the country to earn certifications in all sections of the ACT. Mike is proud to be the founding president of the Board of Directors of the National Test Prep Association, a nonprofit dedicated to promoting the highest ethical standards and best practices in the test prep industry while advocating for the appropriate administration and use of standardized tests for admissions and assessment purposes. Mike is also the founder of the co-host of Tests and the Rest, the college admissions industry podcast, as well as creator of the free testing and admissions answer site TestBright and the Facebook industry group for test prep professionals, Test Prep Tribe. Lastly, Mike is the co-author of the Amazon bestseller, Crash and Learn, Lessons in Business. Welcome to the College Scoops podcast, Mike. Thank you so much for joining us today. Myra, it's so great to speak with you again. You are on our drive across the states, <laughs> and I am so thankful for your advice and tips and your podcast. I listened to Tests and the Rest as we went state to state. You're the co-host of that, so thank you for bringing some good listening material. I'm grateful that you found our Tests and the Rest podcast to be worthy of your playlist. It totally was. I clicked not one, but a couple, so thank you for that. And I do want to make a plug for Leanne Crane, who introduced us because she's just a great person and she's a connector and she's always been a strong supporter of College Scoops for a long time. So Leanne um, Crane and I go way back. We're old friends. We both live in the Rochester area and I've known her for a long time and I know her family. She's 
Wonderful. Good people. Really good get people. down to earth. I just feel bad if Leanne's listening. Last time she and I met, somebody hit her car in the parking lot while we were hanging out at Starbucks. Oh, no. But she's all fine. Right. She rolls with the punches because that's who she is. That's who she is. Well, all right. Hope your car's fixed, Leanne. <laughs> that's it. So, Mike, I invited you on today because we're always getting questions on testing and you are a guru on that. And I just have one question for you to start yeah. off. Were you good at taking tests? Moira, there are lots of different paths to becoming a test prep professional, but almost always it starts with being naturally good at tests. And when I say naturally good, I don't mean I was born with all the knowledge that you need, but I was born with an interest in reading, which okay. sets you up right there. I was born with an interest in math problem solving. Also, I've always loved games and being a great test taker involves a lot of the same skills that being a great video game player or a great role-playing game player or a great chess player requires. There's strategy, there's tactics, there's an interest in finding a shortcut or a hack. You put all that together and you can look back at my record. I've always been great at all the old state tests, you know, the reading tests. When it came time to take the SAT, I did extremely well. That's always been something for me. If my kids are listening, they're going to get upset because I never let them play video games. So they're going to say, hey, mom, if you'd only let me play video games. I'm night, telling you, you know, that people, would have helped. people like to say that it improves hand-eye coordination. I don't really think so. But I do think that a lot of games reward the kind of curiosity and ambition. I remember when my kids were growing up, they would play those Nintendo Lego games. And the Lego games just wanted you to break stuff and try stuff and experiment with stuff. And then you'd open all new secret shortcuts and it was so fun for them. And I love that as a template for learning because that's what learning should be like. And good tests reward good habits. Well, you know what? If I had probably heard that speech way back when, I probably would have been a lot better at test taking. For me, it was like the mental block and the judgment, yeah. like, oh, you can't do it, you can't do it. But if I had looked at it as you're kind of describing with curiosity and open eyes and thinking, how can I break it? How can I prove them wrong? Or I think I would have gotten a 36. Sometimes it's just that easy to look at a challenge in front of us and interpret it in a different way, bring a different paradigm. So you've undoubtedly encountered people that say they have test anxiety. They feel anxious about tests. And that's a natural expression of people that just feel anxious about being judged on something that they don't know what they're being judged on and they don't know how they're gonna do on that or they don't wanna be judged on that particular aspect of their ability, but very often looking at it as something different, say, this is not an obstacle. This is an opportunity. This is a chance. And just changing the paradigm turns a big test. And I don't just mean the SAT or ACT. I mean, a final or an audition or tryouts or a championship, like whatever it is, like this is a chance. Too often, certain people look at the failure. Other people look at the chance to succeed, that classic growth mindset. I'm gonna try it. And if I don't win, I'll try to learn from my mistakes. But if I do win, look at what happens next. And that mindset really helps on high stakes exams of every kind. I mean, you're so enthusiastic. People can't see you, but they can hear that enthusiasm <laughs> coming from you. So is that what your experience and that's how you got into the tests? So that's, yes, I was never intimidated by tests. 
I always, just because of my interests, I was a big reader growing up. And I have no doubt you will agree with me that kids who read a lot growing up, they almost unlock an easy button that their peers that don't want to pick up books never access. It's just that constant expansion of knowledge and comprehension and vocabulary, which used to be a big deal on the SAT. Like just because I was doing something that I really liked, it's kind of like if you're a runner, right? If you just run because you love running, well, you are naturally going to be in great shape. You're going to have phenomenal cardio. You're not going to have to work for it the way someone who doesn't run will have to work for it. And for high school and college and testing, reading skills are core to success. So because I was a reader, that opened up other academic interests and that ultimately led. So yeah, when I took the test, I'm not going to say I was a natural, but I have always been very well suited to tests. Well, as you said, it was because of good habit. It's because of your curiosity and that set the foundation for your ability to mentally have the right mindset going in and the curiosity to kind of uncover answers and learn in an environment, whether it was a standardized test, whether it was an end of year assessment, as you said, it kind of sets you up for every stage of learning. That's right. So in terms of testing, when we talk about like the high school, I know when my kids went to go take the test. I'm like, oh, bloody hell, I wish I could help you. I had the test anxiety. I was anxious for them. So not only am I anxious, I knew that I was anxious for myself, but it was like, how can I help you and support you and build that confidence that you can go in and at least set yourself up for success without setting yourself up for failure by walking in with the wrong mindset? right from right. the get-go. How do you work with then students and how do you help them just even walk in the door with that mindset? So it's such a big view of how do we help students do better on tests like the SAT and ACT. And it really depends on what we're talking about. If you're saying, how do I and other test prep professionals work with students? There's a number of areas in which we provide a template, resources, curriculum. So you have the academic resources, breaking down all the different reading skills, all the different grammar and writing skills, all the different math content and problem solving strategies, all the different graphical literacy and background science knowledge and experimental design knowledge that students need to bring to tests like the SAT and ACT. And that's a piece of it. And breaking down the general content, but also the way the information is tested, you know, right? Everybody comes to the SAT and ACT knowing how to read. Very few of them get perfect reading scores. So there's a gap, right? How are you supposed to read what are the skills and strategies to engage with unfamiliar text, mostly nonfiction, across a variety of content areas and quickly understand what the author wrote that to say and then be able to answer questions based directly on what you just read while you can consult that text, right? Like it sounds on the face of it really easy and yet our kids struggle and it's my job to show how to do that, to say this is how it's done, this is the time that you're permitted, this is how you can move quickly and efficiently through this process and reading and this process in writing and language and this process in math and combine lots of academic and technical skills to maximize your test score. We put all that together, right? You think about just the technical skills of managing your time, managing your focus, managing your comfort level and energy, like eating the right foods and getting the right amount of sleep. What we do 
in test prep, when we do it at the highest level, is akin to what all coaches do. Think about how a sports coach tries to map out for a student every step in the process for an athlete, every step in from the beginning of the season, what you need to do in the off season, what you're doing, how you're working up from the first practices to scrimmages, to games, to working towards the playoffs hopefully a championship and coaches will micromanage everything. They'll talk about the discrete skills that you need to practice in isolation, but then they'll talk about how you have to put that all together in actual games. And that's like when test prep will teach you all the different skills for all the different sections, but you've got to take full practice tests. It's so true. And I remember even specifically throughout my three kids going through it, given the analogy to sports, it's so good for anyone who's been in that sport. It's like you may have been in the best conditioning for that particular, but there's other elements and factors that come into play on the day right. of. It's the temperature. It's the sleep the night before. I remember going in, I'm an open water swimmer. And I remember the night before a big open water swim, my daughter had a sports event I had to go to. I did not eat my normal pasta dinner, right. my red glass of wine. I right. did not eat that the night before. That next day, I had just had something little for dinner. That next day I woke up and I was drained. I was zapped of all energy. I performed horribly and I had right. worked so many months for that particular day, but it was the night before that I blew it from a nutrition standpoint. And that is such a perfect example, Mara, because imagine now we're talking instead about the SAT and that your daughter had prepared for months. She did everything right. She had the natural ability. She had the lifetime of academic achievement. She had all the reading and grammar and math skills. She learned and practiced and took practice tests and was projecting the score a certain way. But then the night before the test, something happened. She didn't eat the right thing. She didn't sleep. She woke up in the morning. She was feeling sick. She got to the test center and forgot her ID. If she didn't get the score she was expecting, it wasn't because of any failure in any part of the process except the realization that how you do on test day depends on lots of factors and you should try to control everything, right? And you have a routine. You described to me your classic open water, night before, big bowl of pasta, <laughs> glass of red wine. And I bet that was the last time you deviated from your routine. Absolutely. It was like a no brainer. I said that was such a rookie mistake. It was so disappointing. And I think that's important. I'm sure in your discussions with students, it's like, you know, it's as you said, there's a process in place. And I love it how you break it down into chunks because that's more manageable. Yeah. for students as well. I mean, right. you've said there's an academic part, but then there's like the way they're writing it and what they're inferring. And there's little tricks of the trade. Say a student is going to be a chess player. Obviously you focus on all the moves and all the experience of all the different games, the great games that have been played and you learn all that and you practice a lot. But then, yeah, in the practice of doing it over and over again, you learn certain tricks, certain ways that high-level chess players manage things that novices don't know, right? And it's not to say that there are tips and tricks to make you an elite chess player, but if you're elite in anything, you learn certain tips and tricks that are part of the domain of that task. The way you learn how to excel in a specific test, say, is often specific to the test and to you, how you learn it and you practice it and then you integrate and make it part of your own approach. And that's another thing that people don't realize when we're talking about anything as basic as preparing for a test 
learning a sport, an instrument, mastering a hobby, is that you have to learn from experts, whether you're self-studying, you're reading a book, you're taking a class, you're working one-to-one with an expert. But no matter what you learn, it's not yours until you make it yours through deliberate practice. And as a parent who had kids going through it, the questions I typically would ask would be, how do you decide what test to take and when do you take it? So can you share a little bit of guidance for families? So we have some big questions here. The first is the difference between the SAT and ACT. And when we're talking about college admissions, those are the two big tests, right? And the good news is that unlike in decades previous, colleges accept both the SAT and ACT equally. There are no more SAT-only schools and ACT-only schools. You're not bound by geography or target destination. And it's helpful because the two tests have never been more similar. And it is entirely possible that a given student is equally good at both of them because they both test fundamentally the same material. They both test passage-based reading. They both test English grammar and writing in a multiple choice context. They both test all of the math that a student learns from the earliest grades to Algebra 2, and then maybe a little bit of pre-calculus on the ACT. There are differences, obviously, in the way some of these topics are tested and what's emphasized on each exam, but ultimately it's the same material. And that means that if students are strong, say, in English grammar, then they might do equally well on those sections of the SAT writing and language and ACT English section. They differ a little bit in that... The ACT hasn't changed substantially over decades. Changes a little bit all the time, but has not had a massive revision the way we've seen in the SAT every decade or so. And that means that while the ACT hasn't changed as much as the SAT, the kind of student today who does better on the ACT is different from the kind of student who we used to say does better on the ACT. It's always important when you're talking about the tests to look at them through the lens of the year you're looking at them, not through the way older kids did, or maybe you yourself did, Interesting. which is okay. to say the SAT used to be considered the test for readers. And it earned that reputation because the SAT was stuffed full of really fancy vocabulary words, esoteric vocabulary that in popular parlance has come to be called SAT word. Because the tests leaned so heavily on discrete high-level vocabulary in sentence completions and analogies, and if you go back far enough antonyms, people thought, yeah, if you're a reader, you're going to be better on that test. But College Board abandoned all of that by 2015 and changed the test to really reward math knowledge. Okay, so half of your composite SAT score is based on your math and math can be really challenging. Just like always, you know, tricky, trapsy, lots of word problems on SAT math. There's a strong emphasis on algebra, too, even though concepts from geometry to basic algebra to even arithmetic are tested. And one area that the SAT diverges from the ACT in math is that on the SAT, there's one section where students may not use the calculator. Now, this might not sound like such a big deal to those of us who took the SAT and we could never even use a calculator. Today's students find the calculator very much a security blanket and 
feel lost without one close at hand for doing even basic calculation, which means that students will naturally struggle on the SAT math no calculator section. The ACT, on the other hand, you know, the, the math section of the ACT, students can use a calculator in every one of those 60 questions. But students who are strong in math and also who maybe aren't such fast readers love that the SAT gives you more time per reading and grammar question. So that kind of student could do really well on the SAT relative to the ACT. And that's really important for the student to self-reflect. For parents to have a sense of who their teens are, you know, same thing if we look at the ACT and we say, well, the ACT has always been more of a test of breadth than depth. On the math section of the ACT, many more topics are tested, but not necessarily to the depth that they might be tested on the SAT. And ACT reading passages are denser. There are more words. There's less time per reading question. There's a lot less time per grammar question. But at the same time, maybe the questions are not quite as tricky or challenging. Also, the ACT has a science section. So students that are really good, not just at science, because you don't have to be great at science to be great at the science reasoning section. They don't call it that anymore, but that's what it is. The ACT science test is a test of science reasoning, of graphical literacy, of understanding of, the, of experimental design and scientific method. And students who are comfortable with that find that the ACT science test is a great reading test, testing things that they like to read. You know, today's teens are much more comfortable with complex graphs, charts, and diagrams than they are with big blocks of text. When you're first looking at it, take a look at your learning style and where your strengths are and how that be reflected on ACT or SAT to kind of figure out where you might want to take it. Do you recommend people take both tests first and get a sense of it? Yes and no. So I'm not a big proponent of ever taking an official test to see how you're going to do on that test. I don't think any, any of us as parents would sign our kids up to take the road test to see if they need to do driver's ed. No. <laughs> when <laughs> okay. you say it like that, you're like, hell no. But it's funny because nobody does that with any other test. You don't say, well, don't study for the midterm. We'll figure out for the midterm how much you need to study for the final. Of course not. If there's a test, you prepare for it before you right. take it. And hopefully you don't have to take it again. <laughs> so... With the SAT and ACT, most people should know, you know, don't realize, but should know that they have access to all kinds of high quality practice test opportunities. College Board releases for free eight full length official ACTs on their website. You can download it, take it, you can use a College Board app and you don't even have to calculate the score. The score will be calculated for you and it'll hook into Khan Academy and then give you things to work on. All free, all available all to free, anyone. All on the College Board website. ACT releases every three years another free full-length ACT that you can take. And then you get that test booklet probably in your counselor's office. They have big stacks of these booklets for free. They have big stacks of free SATs for you to take. And both College Board and ACT release books that you could buy in a bookstore with six to eight full-length exams. Again, that you can take with answer keys, with written explanations, right? So students that want to take a good practice test have access to good practice tests that they can take real, original, mm -hmm. official tests, not third-party tests. You always take right. an official SAT, an official ACT. So they could take the test, see how they do. And of course, this is, you know, for anybody listening, if you're going to take a practice test, 
you take it under official testing conditions. You follow the timing strictly without interruption, without distraction. You try to simulate every aspect of the test experience possible so you can trust your results. And very often, test prep companies like my own proctor practice tests. We go into libraries and we run online tests where students sit down and they take the test and we let them know when their warnings are. We know when their sections are over, when to go on to the next section. The more you can do that, the more you can trust the feedback you get from your practice tests. Practice tests are great for diagnostic. And again, I don't really think that a student needs to take both a full SAT and a full ACT before they decide what direction they're going to go. But all test preparation, no matter how you're going to do it, should incorporate practice testing and test review. So very often what we do is we'll start a student with a PSAT score. We'll just start a student in an area and we'll do an SAT-ACT combo program until we know if they're better at one. Or maybe they're going to take both, but at different intervals, we'll say, okay, now it's time to take an SAT and we'll look at that SAT and we'll review it. And then we'll say, okay, now we've done this and it's time for you to take an ACT. There's no reason to make all the decisions up front, but Mm -hmm. there are lots of reasons to integrate testing into a comprehensive preparation program. If you're not taking practice tests, you're not really doing full test preparation. Right. So one, it is as we just described in the sports analogy, it is essential. Training days for that particular event, which is that testing day. 100%. It's not not just sports. If you were a piano teacher and you were preparing one of your students for a recital, but they refused to do anything but practice snippets of a piece, how would you know that they were ready to play the entire piece in front of people? Absolutely. You don't practice it until you get it right one time and you say, that's it. Now that I've done it one time, I'm always going to do it that way. You practice it until you can't get it wrong. You practice it until you're always getting the result that you want. So you've done that practice practice test, you fine tune, okay, now I'm going to take one or the other. What's your take on how many times should students take it? And is there a time frame that you would suggest is like the fall harder than the spring or the August, September test? Like, is there any direction, advice that you can give students? on that? Lots of advice to give on when to take it, but I want to address the last question first. There's absolutely no time of year when the test can be predicted to be easier or harder than another time. If that was known and predictable, then colleges would discount those scores. Now, this is not to say that a particular test, say the April ACT last year had a particularly difficult science section or particularly easy English section, That was not by design. That was just the fact that even though these exams represent the most carefully standardized and scrutinized and designed tests in human history, they're still created by human beings. And while they try to get every single test equivalent to every single other one in every measurable detail, not entirely possible. So sometimes, yeah, the English section will be a little easier, noticeably easier. The science section will be noticeably harder, but that's all on a test-by-test basis, which is why it's always good in planning to make sure you give yourself the lead time and the opportunity to test more than once if necessary. Very often when I talk to families, we look at a plan A and a plan B. This is your 
primary target. And if you have to test again, this is your secondary test. When I applied, it was four, six schools. Then it was eight to 12 was the norm, 16. And now you hear these crazy numbers. So you take that and you reflect back to on the test process. It doesn't make sense. No one would say, go and take it four times. Taking the test four times officially seems like you are chasing gains that aren't coming. One to three times is a nice target for each one. There's no limit to the number of practice tests you need to take. But as far as that goes, and as far as when to take the test, a lot of students ascribe to their parents' paradigm of testing, which was that you take the test at the end of junior year, and then if you need to, you test again at the beginning of senior year. That works for a lot of students, especially students on the regular track that are finishing Algebra 2 in junior year, and maybe they don't have a lot going on in the spring, and somehow they can find the focus. However, most juniors that I know have a lot going on throughout junior year that comes to a head in spring, meaning that if you are a spring athlete, if you are an AP student, if you go to school during difficult times, like, I don't know, a global pandemic where material gets put off over and over and over again until teachers have to teach six months of content in the last two months of school, you're going to find that the last, that the spring of junior year is really busy. It doesn't even include considerations like spring break. Right. If you're in New York state, you also have a winter break and prom, which often, you know, depending on the school, it's impossible for every school to avoid planning prom for the weekend of an SAT or ACT. There are lots of landmines in the calendar for the end of junior year, which is why I like families to look at the arc of junior year. There are a lot of reasons why rising juniors may consider preparing in the summer going into junior year and then testing as early as August SAT and September ACT, especially students that have finished algebra two in sophomore year. That's something that's so important in terms of the planning aspect of it. When you lay it out like that, and you put those family obligations, this extracurricular obligations, to the extent that you can plan, and we all know that best plans are made to be broken, a plan or two, so I always have plan B, plan C, because right. you have to expect the unexpected. You wake up, all of a sudden you catch a cold, or yeah. you break a leg or something like that. Those are things, factors that have to come in. So to your point, take a look, sophomore, the beginning of the summer, you're starting the thinking process. Right, at the process. end of sophomore year, I have a lot of parents that call me, you would laugh, I have parents that call me in early 10th grade, and they're like, is it too late to get started? And I say, no, it's too early to get started, but let's talk again in the spring because the spring of 10th grade is a great time to, as you say, look out over the whole arc of the year and kind of project, okay, I know that you are a fall athlete. Mm -hmm. And that means that, you know, based on around here, you know, in upstate New York, school doesn't start until after Labor Day, which I know is crazy to other parts of the country, but right. that means that football and other fall sports start practicing in mid-August, mm -hmm. okay? Once that happens, your time isn't really your own. Right. So if you were going to prepare, you'd have to prepare before that. But if you're, say, a fall athlete of any kind, then maybe you wait until the November SAT or you wait until October. But say you know that you're a spring athlete. Say you are a 
cross-country skier. Say you are in robotics, okay? Robotics season consumes you and you don't have time to do anything else. Right. Look over the year, block out the times, think about realistically how good your team or your organization is. Are you guys going to playoffs? I can't tell you how many students I've seen derailed because their teams just did better in a sport and they were supposed to test, but now they're getting ready for the championship. They're going to States and parents are torn because they want their kids to succeed all the way, but they're ready to go on to the next part, right? No, it's so funny. You should be excited and so happy about that yeah. one achievement and excelling unexpectedly, but right. then it comes down to the planning. So that is something where not only students take a self-reflect, but also parents have their input and sharing the second set of eyes That's on right. the planning schedule. Also for the parent to be supportive and not derail the student based upon what they think might be the best timing That's for them. Putting that together and having a sense and then your plan A, plan B. So maybe we look at it and we say, absolutely, we're going to target the August SAT. And if you don't get the score you need on the August SAT, we're going to register you just in case for the October SAT, which is, you know, six weeks afterwards. By the time you get your scores, it's too late to register. So you want to register for it anyway as that backup. But that way, you don't have to wait three or six months to start over. You go right back into it. You just right. keep going and, you, and you're ready to try a second time. And I would only add a little parental caution on that one too, because this came up with us. I always plan. And like you said, you plan accordingly. You have to sign and register for a test prior to. But the other thing is, I remember when my kids started driving and all of a sudden they were locked out of their local location. And this may sound funny, but the only place they could get was 40 minutes away from home, new I driver, going to a new place. That added a layer of stress that should have never been there. So I, I would say, you know, <laughs> yeah. factor in that as well. They don't want to show up with their parents, maybe at a test. They don't want to be driven. They want that to use that time to kind of decompress and get ready. So right. all those little factors are what we say for the planning aspect of taking the test. In terms of what we as parents can do, we've touched on them, being understanding of the way they're learning style, helping them ask the questions like, when is the best time? What do you have on the calendar? But also supporting them from a learning style as well. Do you have any other advice for parents? You ask such great questions, Mara. And I know it's because you've been through this yourself and you are planful by nature and you recognize the importance of paying attention to the right details and implementing the right plan. And we as parents, we conspire for our kids' success. We can't succeed for them, but we can try to put all the pieces in play for them. And that is as basic as you say, recognizing how much freedom they need in the process, how much latitude they need, either give them the latitude or don't put a responsibility on them that they're not prepared to take up. Same comes when you talk about learning styles, right? There's a wide range of levels of both motivation and ability when it comes to self-directed learning, okay? And some students are incredible autodidacts. They can learn the most complicated academic subjects on their own. They just have a passion and a hunger for it, and they read the textbooks, and they go online, they go on YouTube. That's true, right? but that's not common. For the most part, the only time you're going to see students really do that is if they're, say, trying to unlock a new level in Fortnite or Call of Duty or learn something new in Minecraft, and then they are scholars. But when it comes to schoolwork, they need more active guidance. 
So it is a ritual. It's a tradition every year. Parents at the beginning of the year, they pick up these really big Barron's books or other third-party books for the APs and they drop the 900-page book on the student's desk and they say, I want you to start working on this early in the year. You keep up so that when you take your AP in the spring, you're already ready, right? And then they check in in February and there's just a layer of dust on that book that's never been touched. And the same thing goes for testing. Parents contact me all the time. Oh, I bought the official SAT study guide. I got the book. Like, has the book been cracked yet? No, (laughs) it's just there mocking us. I'm just laughing because I did that once. And I looked at it and both my son and I looked at each other and we started laughing. We're like, eh, I'll return it. Look, totally natural. And it's not to say don't return it, But realize that if your teen is not a self-motivated learner in some and motivated to learn this, then your teen's not going to do it. The SAT and ACT are the kind of challenges that students that want to learn on their own have never had more access to better, higher quality practice material and resources. And the world is full of students every year. When I say full, I mean, there's not that many who earn perfect scores, but I would guess that at least half of all the perfect scorers in any given year, they did it themselves. And you can't say that for anything else. You can't say that for Olympic medals. You can't say that for, you know, people that get record deals, right? Like usually it takes a lot of of support to do anything at such an elite level, but there are a lot of kids that break through and they work together. So if you know that your student is that way, give them the motivation, give them resources if they need those resources to pursue what they need to do and just to support them as they self-study their way. But if your teen is not a self-studier, then think about how does your teen learn best? Does your teen learn well in a group setting? Does your teen need someone one-to-one? Does your teen have a learning disability? Learning difference that very often I talk to parents, their kids are phenomenal scholars, but they process more slowly. Can't throw a student like that into a group setting because that student will always feel left behind. And considering that students get accommodations on the tests, then students should prepare with their accommodations. Be realistic about your teen. Also be realistic about the level of motivation that your teen has, okay? There are lots of parents that want their teens to be star athletes, want their teens to get amazing grades, want their teens to be wonderful performers. If their teens are not wired that way, you can't want it for them. You cannot turn a student that has no interest in basketball into a star basketball player. You just can't do it. Why would you do it? If your child has no desire to test or improve on an exam like the SAT or ACT, do not waste your time or resources. It's such good advice because I think that's the hardest part during the whole college process at various different stages. We're going to be presented the parents with different opportunities that they see as opportunities for their students, but really that their student has different ideas. And it's a conversation. And I think that's the biggest thing I would say as a parent, keeping that line of communication open with your student because you learn a lot. They learn a lot about themselves going through this process and what they like and don't like, what they're good at and not good at, or don't have an interest in. There's so much money that you could waste and schools that you could attend that are not the right 
schools for that particular learner. So just take a step back and reflect. And you and I are both parents. We've both seen it. We both, everyone wants the best for their kids, but at the end of the day, mental health is huge. Right. So. That's really big. This concept of mental health is critical because while we don't recognize it, or maybe we pay lip service to it, not every parent is really invested in putting a child's mental health first and that the college admissions process means so many things to so many people. And honestly, this is a part of life that attracts so much passion and excitement. And we all think back to our college days and either we want our kids to relive them or we want our kids to exceed them or we want our kids to have opportunities we never had. And everybody brings different visions to what this should be like but at the end of the day, the journey belongs to each individual applicant and should reflect that person's best self and best future. So authenticity in this process is critical because the last thing you want is to try to mold your teen into someone he or she is not, because all that does is prepare your teen for a future that is not right for him or her. So you say it so nicely. I said, bring baggage. You're like, bring a different vision. I love it, Mike. <laughs> we could have so many more conversations. I have two last questions for you. What do you wish you knew before attending college? Oh, wow. I knew so little, Maura. I was ignorant. I was completely ignorant. I was like in my nuclear family, I was practically a first gen in that my mother never went to college. My dad went to college but was drafted before he got his degree, like, cause he was a terrible student and he didn't take enough classes and he got drafted out and never finished. Even though I went to high school and, you know, everybody was applying to elite schools and I applied and got into Ivy League schools, I had no idea. I didn't know a single thing in my family, I didn't know a single thing about this process. And so I wound up not going to an Ivy League school because we realized that no matter how much scholarship I got, I couldn't afford it. Mm -hmm. And I went, went to a safety school. I went to SUNY Stony Brook, turned out to be a great school for me. At least, I mean, it was great in that I met phenomenal people, including my wife, but I didn't even know what I was supposed to do at college. I didn't know how college was different from high school. I just kept getting good grades, but I didn't know what I was doing. So I wish I knew what college could have really been for me. College could have really been a chance for me to explore my future in a more serious way. If I knew what I wanted to do when I graduated, I should have found ways to do that while I was in college. I should have been setting up my next step. And, and I hope that Today's teens understand that, that college is not high school plus. Right. College is the next step in an evolution towards independence, productivity, and hopefully happiness. Oh, it's so true. And that's the other way that we connected. I remember now, Stony Brook. I used to that's live right. there and I swam with the Stony Brook sea wolves. The there Stony Brook so sea wolves. I love it. <laughs> the proud sea wolves. The proud <laughs> sea wolves. They have a brand new pool I have yet to swim in, but I will get there. That will be another adventure for me. Do you have a favorite dessert place on a college campus? So I don't spend time on college campuses very often now. I'm not close to any of our local ones. I do remember when I went to Stony Brook, and this is a long time ago, so no place that I'd refer to would even be there anymore. But a place opened up called The Joint. Really edgy name. But it was like a student-run little deli hangout place. They were right in our dorms. 
And if you caught them while they were open, they stocked Ben and Jerry's. Oh, so that. that was the place you would go for your Ben and Jerry's fix. And that was, uh, so I loved that. Well, you know what? I have to go back to my Stony Brook student ambassadors, find out what the local place is so I can share that with you. <laughs> I told you I am dying to go back to Stony Brook because I know they've transformed a lot since I've been yeah. there and undoubtedly for the better. Absolutely. Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a great conversation. And... It was a great pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, Mike, for sharing your expertise and guidance with us about test prep and how students and parents can best prepare for the ACT and ICT test. Like anything in life, whether it is a sports event, a musical, or a class test, students need to prepare and plan for taking the SAT and ACT. First and foremost, there are a host of free resources out there for students to take practice tests. Take both the SAT and ACT test to get a better feel for which test you are most comfortable with and what test you perform better at. Plan to take the test one, max three times. At the end of sophomore year, take a look at your junior year the fall, winter, and spring calendars. Map out any tournaments, vacations, holidays, family commitments you have to gauge how busy you will be to determine when the best time to take a test is. Always have a plan B or plan C ready for the unexpected. And parents support your students by helping them with the initial planning stages. Listen to them as to what they want in terms of taking the particular test and help them create the best training ground for taking that test. You can find all of our show notes and links to the helpful resources mentioned throughout our conversation on our website at collegescoops.com slash podcast. You can learn more about Mike and Chariot Learning on their website, chariotlearning.com. Please take a couple of minutes to rate, review, and subscribe to College Scoops. Thank you for listening to our College Scoops podcast. Our entire College Scoops team strives to make the college journey a little bit easier, less stressful, fun, and tasty by sharing all the inside scoops we have curated along the way. We would love to hear from you about topics to cover and your ideas on everything college related. Reach out to us at collegescoops.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.